Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health, broken down in a relatable way, and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nera. And today we have Chelsea Leyland joining us. Chelsea has been invited to speak across the globe about her experience with epilepsy, medical cannabis, and her focus on patient access including at European Parliament and Cambridge University, and more recently on her navigation of endometriosis, pregnancy losses, and reproductive health. Previously, she spent over 10 years DJing and curating music for fashion and art clients globally, including Chanel, Fendi, the Guggenheim Museum, and MoMA. Passionate about building community with the power of vulnerability being central to her ethos, Chelsea started numerous close-knit advocacy groups outside her 65K social following, facilitating personable support for individuals going through challenges, experiences with epilepsy, endometriosis, and fertility struggles. Hey, Chelsea, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm feeling a little crazy as I feel like everyone is (laughs) right now. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot happening in the world right now. It's not a, not an easy time to be a human, I think. Absolutely. Or someone who is um, deep feeling or empathic in any way. It's, it's uh, lots of emotions. Yes, definitely. Um, It's, yeah, it's, you have to, you have to protect yourself, even when you're trying to kind of, you know, make sure that you know what's going on and what's happening in the world, which is tough. That's actually a really good point. So I'm going to dive right in. And for, for our listeners who may know you as you know for your dj and music career and being also a crusader for epilepsy and it girl of new york can you give me just a little background or give them a little background on how you ended up in new york from because you were born in england is that correct yes yeah i'm born in england and so how did you make it to new york or when did you come to new york well, first of all, I just want to thank you for having me on the podcast. Oh. <laughs> um, it's really great to be here. Um, so, yeah, I am a Brit in New York and I moved to New York when I was 19. Um, so, you know, pretty, pretty much like fresh out of school. Um, and the reason I moved to New York was to go to drama school. I attended the Lee Strasberg um, Theatre and Film Institute to learn how to become a method actor. Okay, love it. Um, And I did two years there. And I started DJing. uh, My boyfriend at the time was encouraging me to DJ. Um, I had been recommending a friend for a couple of jobs to a few people that I knew that worked within the fashion world. And I also, you know, needed to start paying my rent and life was getting expensive in New York. And um, my boyfriend at the time said to me, why don't you start DJing? And he was like, why don't you learn to DJ properly? Because at the time, you know, there were, there were a few female DJs, but really more like song selectors. And my boyfriend said, you know, why don't you learn, take classes, learn how to DJ properly on turntables and um you know you've got great music taste you love music and that's really how it all started um and I think like the first gig that I had well I was DJing in hotel lobbies that's kind of where it began and I did was doing a few like bars and clubs and then uh yeah I did Ben Watts's shark attack party July 4th party um and I think actually is that the photographer Yes, that's the photographer. So you, so that for 10 years, basically you were, you know, I know how hard that can be traveling, just even if you're in great health, I mean, and sane mind, I mean, I traveling is just so hard on your body. 
It really is very taxing on the body. And I think, you know, I guess certainly for me in terms of like where, where my mind was at for so many years was because I was having so much fun and enjoying what I was doing and also feeling incredibly grateful and, and blessed to have such a fun career and, and, you know, make, be able to you know make a living by doing something that's so creative that I loved um, and was very glamorous. I think I, I never really gave myself room until, you know, my health made it very obvious uh, to kind of actually entertain the fact that like it was quite taxing and on the body and it was really difficult um, and exhausting. I think because I was getting to do something that was so fantastic, it was quite hard to be like, actually like this is a lot and I'm physically exhausted. You know, I mean, certainly as I've got older, I've realized how much travel like takes the wind out of your sails. And I think a lot of people I've spoken to realize that, you know, sort of post COVID where they did stop traveling. And like, I remember getting on a flight after, you know, this was kind of um, after like lockdown COVID. Um, I remember getting on a flight from like England um, to Spain and it was just like a couple of hours. I just remember the feeling like utterly pooped afterwards and realizing that like, God, all those like long haul flights that I used to take, what they must've been doing, you know, to my system, my body. How old were you when you were first diagnosed with epilepsy? I was first diagnosed with epilepsy when I was 15. Wow. That must've been really scary at that age. It was really scary. I had been having symptoms for a couple of years. I think the symptoms that I started to experience began at, at age 13. Um, wow. it, it took another two years to actually receive a diagnosis. And I think it was particularly scary because I had grown up with an older sister who has epilepsy and has very severe epilepsy. And that had been such a, you know, um, intense and, you know, really been the kind of, you know, just like a real challenge within my family growing up, um, seeing someone and, you know, a sibling and, and that you love suffer like that is, is really, really tough. And so, yeah, and I was always like the cognitively healthy child or sibling. And so, you know, having had a normal life up until that point, it was just like a huge bomb had been dropped um, right. on the laps of my family, I think. So when you said you had symptoms before, were these just small seizures or what does that mean in terms of, like, did you think, oh, maybe I do have epilepsy or, oh, this is just whatever, you know, could be something not related? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So it all started really when I would be on car journeys. So when um, you'd be in a car and you'd tra be traveling somewhere, driving or no, you'd just be passenger? I don't drive, actually. I, I still I still don't have a license, which is actually happened to my epilepsy. But yes, I would be in the car and I would notice the dappled light that would come through the trees uh, or buildings would flicker. Um, and as it would like hit my uh, eyelids, I would experience this very, very funky sensation um, that is hard to articulate. And the analogy I often use is, um, so it's sort of like a glitch in the matrix. So mm. like, you know, I could be thinking about what I had for breakfast or I, I could be in conversation with you. And when I have what is known as a myconic jerk, a mini seizure, I will get a little like glitch in my brain. It will be like a little interruption and I'll lose, you know, I'll, I'll lose my kind of train of thought or I will have no idea what I'm talking, talking about, you know, like it's like something just suddenly stopped for a second. And I would get this sensation in the car, you know, and I would turn around to my mom and I would say, I feel funny when the light flashes like that. And, you know, there was just obviously so much trauma within my family and my mom, you know, had to deal with so much just watching my sister um, go through what she did. And so she just would kind of say, oh, my gosh, don't, don't, don't worry me. Don't worry me. You know, and I think also it was just kind of hard to believe that something would just kind of spring out of no rage 13. So that was kind of how it first started. And those jerks would became like increasingly um, worse. Like I would experience them in the morning 
in clusters. And as you know, I experienced that kind of interruption in my brain, my hands also do this funny thing where they just kind of like open really quickly. They open and close, a little jerk basically. You know, for years from the age of 13 to 15, and as they became increasingly worse, and I was getting clusters of them in the morning, I would be there sort of eating my breakfast with my cup of tea. And, you know, I could be holding onto a bowl of cereal and the bowl of cereal would just drop out of my hand and smash on the floor. Um, and by the end, you know, I guess sort of before going to see a neurologist, it was happening to me so frequently that, you know, I would go through a morning and by the end of it, I would have smashed three bowls, two mugs. I mean, it was, wow. And such a strange thing to, to witness as well. Like I remember my boyfriend at the time, like it's kind of a scary thing, almost kind yeah. of comical. Like, it's just very strange to see someone like dropping you know, plates and he's like, okay, I guess you don't like this chinaware. Like, what's the deal? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you really don't like those Weetabix. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, at the time I was, I was at a boarding school in England and um, I'd been going to see the doctor for many years. He kept telling me that, um, and this seems like a, a theme within my life, um, going to see physicians, uh, telling them that there's something wrong with me and, and just kind of being met with a very dismissive uh, response. But the doctor said, you know, if there's nothing wrong with you. A lot of people get jerks when they're, when they're tired. Um, and I think, it, you know, towards the end, he just said, look, I think this might be psychosomatic because of the trauma that you had with your sister. I don't think there's anything wrong with you, but for peace of mind, and because you've come to me, um, you know, now over three times or whatever it was, uh, we'll send you to a neurologist and, um, and, you know, you can talk to him and lo and behold, I, I went to see a neurologist. I explained exactly what I had done with you that I was experiencing these, you know, clusters. They were becoming like really, really intense in the morning. They would happen when I was tired in the morning. Um, and he just said to me, you have what's known as juvenile myclonic epilepsy, historically known as flying saucer epilepsy, because people would have their, you know, little sources of the tea in the morning and they would fly out of their hands. Oh my, that's what it's known as? Historically, yes. But now juvenile myclonic epilepsy, but yes, in the past, people referred to it as flying saucer epilepsy. (laughs) Which sounds kind of cooler to be honest. Yeah, I know. I was like, this is cool. Sounds like a cool like club to be in. And I mean, don't you, I get so angry when I hear about this doctor that was just dismissing you for so many years. And then when you actually went to the neurologist, I mean, thank God for him, he diagnoses you. As I said, like, this has just been a theme within my life. And so, you know, it's happened to me. It happened to me with my epilepsy. It happened to me with endometriosis, the second chronic condition I was diagnosed with. And it's kind of happening to me right now while I'm on this fertility journey. So, you know, it's really tough when you have these experiences that ultimately lead you to like have a lack of trust in the medical system. Yeah. And people really need to people listening. You, we all really need to listen to our guts when something is wrong. Cause my friend who she's in remission now, um, a stage four colon cancer, she went to this doctor for two years and he said nothing you not know that's normal. You don't need to, you know, and I just think, you know, especially women's intuition, you have to listen to your, your gut and keep searching. You do. And I think we know our bodies, you know, yeah, why it's important when, uh, you know, something as sim- simple as like, um, you know, checking for, for lumps within your breasts, you know, like one of the best things that you can do as a woman is actually just like moisturize your body every day and you know that is obviously you know a form of self-care but also touching your breasts and Mm -hmm. rubbing cream rubbing oil on so that if there is something that doesn't feel right you know what your body feels like you know amazing how many people don't even I remember when I did my first egg retrieval and I just I have dry skin and I every day I put lotion everywhere and I felt this lump and I and I I said, oh my goodness, I have to go to the gynecologist right now. And one of my friends was like, well, how did you even feel it? I'm like, cause I touch my breasts every, you know, like who isn't, you, it was just, it was funny to me. Cause it's like, not every woman is doing that. And it was a side effect of one of the hormones. And, you know, then he said, okay, but, but he, cause he's great. Was like, go get 
a mammogram just lets me safe, you know, but people that don't maybe do that or aren't as comfortable with their bodies, then sometimes they can feel something too late. And you're right. You should do that as often as you can as a woman, you know, when you get to be, I mean, I would just start doing it even in your twenties or younger, you know, right. I don't, I think getting to know your body so that, you know, we, you can, you can recognize when it's telling you that something's not right. Um, And I sort of this shame um, around like, you know, and like talking about, as you say, like talking about touching your breasts, like we've sexualized breasts for so long. So it's almost like, you know, forbidden territory, you know, it's the same with like touching yourself in other ways, you know, like it's mm-hmm. important that women like touch themselves and explore. And, and I think that that conversation is, is, is something that we don't have enough. You know, if you're like masturbating, then, you know, you know, how to like, you've experienced your body and you know what you like and you know what you don't like and then you can start having that conversation like with a partner and yet like that is such a normal healthy thing but like we're not having those conversations we're not teaching young girls this in school it's something that's very normal it's a great way that we can actually help our body excrete cortisol from the body it's a great like de-stressor but yet there's so much shame around it because you know women are meant to be holier than thou and we're supposedly somehow someone has told us along the way that we're not meant to touch ourselves, you know? But by the way, I, even me, who I'm very vocal about masturbation and sexuality, even I was like, I, I got my period while I'm, I'm staying at, you know, a hotel, like I told you in the beginning. And I called down to housekeeping, asked for tampons and a guy picked up. And even I was like, Oh, great. Got to ask for the tampons. And he's like, how many? And I'm like, all of them like I don't you know what I, like, like, I, I don't know just bring the goddamn tampons yeah, I'm like, a box? and then like I said all of them and he was like okay like it was like a weird because I yeah, think yeah, it probably yeah. made him uncomfortable yeah it's so funny and I, and like, I like, just bring five I was like just bring five just bring five yeah. <laughs> but I remember like feeling that way you know when I was younger and I would go to a store and I would buy tampons and then at the checkout you see like a guy there and you're just oh god I don't want to deal and this is a big problem. And, you know, this is also really kind of nicely like circles back to this, this, uh, I think some of these issues w- within like the medical system, you know, particularly when we're thinking about things like menstruation, which I know we're going to start talk- talking about, but like, you know, if we can't create a space where women feel comfortable to talk to that, talk about their body and what's going on, then, you know, we're perpetuating this issue and then it, and then it gets to the point when it's too late. Right. Um, so you got, so you got, uh, once you went to the neurologist and so he, he had said that you had minor, is that right? Or the, the flying saucer epilepsy, which is, which is what is that? It's much less frequent episodes. I mean, you know, it really depends. Mm. Um, epilepsy is, is, uh, you know, a, an um, umbrella term for, there were many, many different types of the condition. Um, Compare in comparison to my sister, that she has intractable epilepsy, um, which means that it's drug resistant. Um, and my sister can have, you know, on a bad day, a very bad day, she can have up to a hundred seizures in a day. And and so, although these myclonic jerks that I've told you about before mm-hmm. are seizures, they're not, you know, tonic clonic or grand mal seizures where you fall to the floor um, and you convulse. You know, when we think of a seizure. That's what most people. That's think. what I think of. So I mean, I I'm learning myself. I don't know a lot about seizures and the different. That's why I was actually calling my dad yesterday. I was like, "Well, can this, you know, because you can have a blood clot and have a seizure, or someone can have a seizure and not have one for years, but they're they don't have epilepsy. You know, sometimes they can't even be explained. And and you know that ha- happened to me uh, in in moments of my life of having, you know, and again I'm talking I'm referring to you know a, a tonic clonic seizure but I could have a seizure and then not have another one for a couple of years but um it is one of the most terrifying experiences um and one that I think takes years to heal from and get your confidence back um and it's just you know it's such a strange sensation it, you know it feels like you've kind of been like electrocuted in your brain um oh. and so it's and it's just there's nothing scarier than coming to and not knowing what happened, you know, like I think back to all the seizures that I had where 
you know, I would like come to and I would look up and people would be like over me and I'd just be like, what the hell happened? And it's like that. You don't moment. remember having when you have one. Uh, you can remember going into it, but usually you don't remember that until like, or for me anyway, usually that's that comes a little later. But you just, you know, I think there's this kind of horrible moment where you start to register what, what has taken place and you're just like, you just don't want to believe it. It really, really knocks your confidence because also then it means once you've had that seizure, you're then living in fear of the next one. And so often I, I say that, you know, the reason like epilepsy is, is such a kind of fearful and anxiety inducing condition is because it isn't just about seizures. You know, people focus on seizures and they talk about seizures. It's everything around the seizures. And it's the, the living in fear of, of the next one, you know, am I going to have a seizure in the airport, you know, um, and am I going to have one on the street right now? You know, you might be heading back home from a night out. You might be dressed in something that, you know, you, you would not want to fall to the floor and like, you might be wearing like a short skirt, you know, it could be dangerous for you. It's heavily stigmatized. So there's so much shame around it. You know, people lose control of their bladder. Um, they can to the floor and have a seizure um and wet themselves that's like incredibly humiliating um and that's you know all of these reasons and like i think because of that stigma a lot of the time people don't feel that they can tell others in the workplace that they suffer from epilepsy because they're afraid of being treated differently they're afraid of being judged because you know, a lot of the time like oh you know you can see it when you tell people that you have epilepsy you know still like there's sometimes people react and say like you know, what, what do you do if you have, you have epilepsy? Like, that's crazy. You know, it's just like, there's a response to it that um, is really different. And I think it's because people, people are afraid of what it looks like when you have a seizure. Like, you know, we, historically, we used to think that epileptics were possessed by the devil. And that's because when you watch someone have a seizure, it, you know, it does actually look like they're possessed by the devil. They start, you know, to, to convulse and choke, their eyes roll in their head. It is really scary. Um, and I think, you know, in society, we're not used to seeing people on the floor unless they're drunk or I like you know, out of control. You just think out of control or like or mess, you know, like what is this person doing? It it's like it's out of it is out of your control or, or whoever has it is suffering. And so I think that's why people get so uncomfortable. Yeah. I mean, do you know how many times I've seen people having seizures like on the street? or like in public places and no one around will go and help because people just think that they're a drunk. Are you serious? Yep. It's happened to That's, me so many times. And because well, I can't because you living in, in England and New York, like big cities, you, you see things like that. You're like in LA, everybody is in a car ignoring everyone. So right. <laughs> <laughs> anybody do anything. That's right. awful. Yeah. So, you know, we don't know though. Like, you know, I mean, I know because I have it. My right. sister has you, it. Have, you rec you're an expert in it. You recognize it. And then what are you, if someone is having it, what are you supposed to, to do? That's a great question. You should put them in recovery position. Um, and the most important thing of you turn them on their side, protect their head um, from, you know, banging or smashing into anything and, and kind of like causing further damage. Um, okay. And so, because they can be moving around quite a lot, as they're like sort of shaking on the floor, it can be quite hard and like heavy to hold a head, but that's a really, really important thing to do because otherwise the head can smash on the floor. You know, my, my sister has experienced oh. a lot of brain damage from falling to the floor or from banging her head on radiators. Um, so mm. it's really, really important to protect their head. Um, don't try to, um, you know, uh, pull them out of the seizure. Do not put anything in their mouth. That is an old wives' tale. This whole thing of you can swallow your tongue. Like I literally on. was just gonna ask you that. I was I was like, wait, don't are you supposed to get like a can? I, I feel always I don't know why I have this thing where I'm afraid of people biting their tongues. So you don't want to do that. You can you can bite your tongue in a seizure. Um mm -hmm. that does happen. That is really common. Um, so you're definitely right there. You know, waiting for them to come around so not like slapping them in the face and being like hello hello you know, just let them finish the seizure a lot of the time you're really really out of it after there can be just a lot of different um manifestations as well like some people laugh some people can be talking gibberish like you know it's um it's really it's it's different depending on obviously who's who's having a seizure but um you know then afterwards the the person that's experienced a seizure is usually really, really exhausted and really wiped. So it's, you know, it, the best thing for them to do is just to go to sleep. You know, a lot of the time people don't need an ambulance to be called, but 
I'm not going to say don't call an ambulance because, you know, people are afraid and if they don't know what to do um, or they're with a stranger, then, you know, maybe that is the best course of action. But I, I tell people, you know, with myself, I'm like, if I you ever see me having a seizure, like, you don't need to call an ambulance. Just tell me on my side, protect my head, and then just put me into bed. Get me to bed. Is, is epilepsy hereditary? So it can be. In our case, uh, that has been uh, a little bit, sort of all the testing we've done has been somewhat inconclusive. Um, Oh, really? Yeah, unfortunately. I mean, one would think it's genetic, given that both my sister and I have it. But do either of your parents or grandparents? Neither of my parents have it. Neither of my grandparents have it. My dad thinks he might have had an uncle that had like, fainting episodes which is a lot of the time back in the day people didn't want to say that they had epilepsy I mean up until the 70s there was a law that you like couldn't get married to someone with epilepsy believe it or not were you on medication for these seizures that it wasn't working and you found cannabis yes so I was put on a cocktail of medication in my teens, I first started taking one drug that didn't quite work. They introduced another drug. And, and you know, I, I guess it, it must have helped in some ways. I mean, perhaps I would have had more seizures had I not taken it, presumably. But I still had seizures on the medication. And my mental health was, you know, heavily affected. So um, as a side effect from these medications. Yeah, I had really really terrible depression debilitating depression anxiety um and you know sometimes it's hard to recognize um you know what is causing it is it the medication would i have always been an anxious kind of you know or the sort of person that was experiencing anxiety and depression yeah probably but the medication made me feel really awful it came with horrific side effects made me hyperactive it gave me insomnia no, and you don't see that. I think sometimes what people don't realize with any with any side effect from medicine, you may not even know it until even a year later, you're like, wow, I can't believe I was falling asleep every day. I remember a friend of mine's husband was on this medicine. They're like, literally he'd be falling asleep. And he's like, no, I'm not. And it, and he was, you know, and he didn't realize until six months later, like, wow, that medicine almost made me, gave me narcolepsy, you know? And sometimes you don't, know it and you're out of it yeah until you have an opportunity to come off it yeah yeah that's the thing it's so hard to distinguish what is me from the drugs that I'm taking right um and you know I was on that medication for a really long time and I was introduced to cannabidiol also known as CBD um at the is that the the, like official should you not say cannabis well so Cannabis is the plant, but, you know, within that plant, we have cannabinoids that are molecules that exist that have these therapeutic and medicinal properties. And one of those molecules, which is known as a cannabinoid, is is, is cannabidiol, CBD. And so I was introduced to, I mean, like CBD and THC, um, you know, are are the most well-recognized and well-known and well, most researched cannabinoids. Yeah, I always call them like, it's like the Angelina Jolie and the Brad Pitt. (laughs) Of the cannabis plant. Um, And THC is psychotropic and CBD is is non-psychotropic. Now, when you say psych, I I mean, I know what that means, but what you, some people won't. So what does that mean, psychotropic? So that means that it comes with, um, you know, a a psychoactive effect so you know we know thc can make us feel high uh and cbd doesn't have that property so i i say i say i like to say um psychotropic over psychoactive because actually cbd can change the state of how we feel um so you know obviously absolutely i've been taking these baths with these like cbd you know like the bombs and they're so great. And, you know, that could have a, a, a therapeutic effect on you, which could be considered psychoactive, right? Well, I mean, you're just, it's better than like taking a bunch of Klonopin or, you know, drinking a bottle of wine. Like it really relaxes me before bed where I'm like, I'm ready for bed, you know? 
and you're you're changing your state as a result. Yes. Um, but so the way that I discovered it and my whole kind of story and, and like introduction to this plant was pretty incredible. Um, the first the first thing I ever learned about medical cannabis for the use of epilepsy was I we, my family was sent a video um, which was a feature on a little girl called Charlotte Figgis. Um, and she had the same as my sister, intractable epilepsy. And her parents were desperate and they started using an oil, um, a CBD oil that someone gave them to try. And it had a really incredible impact um, and was really efficacious in terms of quelling her seizures, this little girl's seizures. And this um, was in, the, she was in England, in the UK? No, this was in the US. This was in the US, okay. This, yeah. story, okay. this is in the US. Um, and, you know, this little girl and her story really pioneered, you know, CBD uh, for the use of, of pediatric epilepsy um, and really put it on the map. And they named a strain after this little girl, um, which is called Charlotte's Web, which you might've heard of. Yes, is it? Yeah. I remember seeing some documentary that these eight brothers who are all yes, like really brothers. hot. Yeah, and I was like, <laughs> where are these men? Are they single? I'm, don't use CBD, but maybe I need to start. And, and he <laughs> told the whole story about, I was like, Charlotte's Web, I, I would like to try that. Um, you know, but it was amazing. I was actually crying. I mean, it was such a, and he said how many families he's helped. Yeah, there was a segment on CNN. Um, probably, I'm such a, I'm such a like news junkie. I'm sure that's where I saw it. Yeah, CNN, Sajid Gupta, and that really yes. like, put it in the map. And, and that was, that was the, the video segment that my family was sent. And I remember seeing it and I remember watching my mom. I mean, it's just a million years ago now. And like thinking, this is, this can't be, this is like fake news. Like, yeah. You're like, news. what? You're like, these, what is this? Yeah. Of course, I would rather the same thing. Someone suffer like to the degree that I have. Of course, you've seen someone have seizures like that every day. It's very hard for your mind to wrap your mind around a little bit of plant oil extracted from a plant like the cannabis plant could possibly be, you know, helping to quell the seizures, having a purpose, or you know searching for meaning in life um can actually like improve your mental health so I, I think that you know if that was a time that a lot of people had that that moment that awakening moment then you know it's in incredibly powerful um I definitely remember when I had that moment myself you know I mean you look at recovery programs whether that's AA or NA you know one of the one of the like key like teachings there is teaching people to be of service because when you can be of had have purpose you know that's really really like healing making a cup of tea and like you know welcoming people into the meetings but I think that is just um you know a very uh kind of fundamental like spiritual teachings of like we can be of service it's how we will heal ourselves you know through helping other people um and I think you know that's it's really like profound that people had that realization during COVID. I mean, I, I definitely remember when I realized that I wanted to sort of try to be of service and, and try and advocate more for people with epilepsy um, and, you know, people that were vulnerable like my sister and didn't have the ability to fight for themselves. So I, on February 10th, a very personal story that you wrote was released on Vogue and it was titled, Chelsea Leyland on pregnancy loss, navigating grief and tackling taboos in women's health. And last July you were pregnant and at eight weeks you started bleeding. Can you tell us what happened? I started bleeding and I went, I went to Dr. Google um, and, <laughs> um, you know, I read that uh, it can be a sign that there's something wrong and it can also mean uh, it could also be just a, you know, a normal uh, symptom of sort of being your first trimester. Uh, one of my friends told me that she bled throughout her whole pregnancy and everything was fine. You know, I think my, my gut was telling me something was wrong, but I was also trying to, to kind of change the mindset and be positive and say like, Hey, you always think something's wrong because you've had, 
such a kind of crazy journey with your health. And so I, I waited to go and do something about it. I waited. Um, and then the bleeding, uh, the, the bleeding got worse. And then I went into the emergency room um, and I was essentially sent away. I won't give you all the details, but I was sent away. They said that if something, you know, serious was happening that, uh, you know, because they checked all my vitals, they said that they would, they would know. So I was sent home. Um, and, uh, I believe it was the next day I went to have a scan and, um, she was doing the ultrasound and quite quickly just said to me, um, you know, uh, cause she was like really quiet. And I remember just lying there being like, something's wrong. Why is she, why is she waiting to tell me something? She just kept moving it over. And then she just said, you know, here's, here's, you know, the baby and, and this is the heartbeat. And I was like looking on the screen and she said, I'm afraid you're having an ectopic. Um, and this is where um, the fetus begins to develop in the fallopian tube. And she said, this is not about saving your baby's life. This is about saving your life. And you need to get into, you need to get to hospital like ASAP because if this ruptures, you can, it can be fatal. Right. It like all happened really really quickly um and I was in surgery two hours later having my right fallopian tube removed like I just can't even imagine how traumatic that must have been it was a lot it was it was um it was really difficult I think you know just as a little backstory I have endometriosis which is a condition that affects one in nine women um or people assigned female at birth and it is the condition that essentially tissue similar to the lining of the uterus begins to grow outside of the uterus. So that can be anyone from the exterior wall of the uterus. It can grow in the gut. Um, it can grow in other organs of the body. Um, and I mean, believe it or not, it's this condition is as prevalent as diabetes. I, I do. I mean, I have a few girlfriends that have that um, have it or, you know, had it very bad sometimes it's ironically like can get better after you have a kid and I was like well that isn't that ironic after you go through basically like hell and back which I know many have who have you know tried to to conceive with this yeah I and and like you know endometriosis can lead to infertility I mean there I is that until your article yeah um that's like you know wow one of the, one of the, I guess, more unfortunate, but sadly very common, um, you know, symptoms of, of, of this condition. And, and I, and I knew that. So I think I always had a little bit of fear that there could be a problem because of that. Um, but actually most of the time, you know, the, the, the infertility is the, the, the challenge in trying to conceive and that, you know, that hasn't been my problem to date. Um, but you know, I did lose a baby recently, which was my second. Um, and uh, unlike the first, which was an ectopic, the second was a missed miscarriage. And, um, you know, I was told by, uh, well, I've been now told by a couple of gynecologists that it's just bad luck. The ectopic, you know, was probably related to my endometriosis because the endometrial tissue can grow in the fallopian tubes, causing the fetus to get stuck. So sort of making it sticky uh that could be you know that's kind of one theory or also you know with uh with endometriosis you know we know that the immune system can it affects the immune system there was a quote i had written in our um interview where you said why i believe this is from the vogue article why is my body letting me down it's really hard not to feel like your body is defective at that point so if you could speak on that in you know relation to the two miscarriages that you um, spoke about in that article, and just how we as women, you know, we we're so hard on our bodies, right? And and there is this still in society: if you don't have children, you don't have a full life, um, which is crazy because it's twenty twenty two. So I just, if you can just talk about even that quote or what that brings up for you, yeah. Um... I think by the time, you know, I reached the, I guess the, the second pregnancy loss, 
-hmm. it was like the first one I was able to just kind of say look this was really bad luck or this was just not my time and to happen a second time was just really hard to have that mindset because at that point you know it's hard not to fall into like a victim mindset it's hard not to be um kind of critical or or harsh towards your physical body because you do feel like why are you letting me down when I want this so much it's not it's not getting what we want and it's not having control over it which I think makes the process so so challenging what is a missed miscarriage a missed miscarriage is when the fetus stops developing but your body still thinks it's pregnant so when I went and had the second scan I was told that the fetus had stopped developing three weeks prior, but I still thought I was pregnant because I was experiencing all of the pregnancy symptoms. You know, um, I, my, my, my breasts were still very like, swollen and painful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I was still very bloated. I felt like the, you know, my kind of baby bump as it were was growing. Um, and it's a very confusing, it's a very confusing thing to go through because, you know, there's this almost like battle between the mind and the body. Um, I had, I, I did not know that could happen. Like I, I knew that you, I didn't know that was a term for it, I guess more that I knew, I knew that sometimes they, a girlfriend of mine had a similar thing where like, they want you to miscarry on your own, you know, I'm putting own in quotes. And I think it's really awesome. This article and what you're building, because you're shining a light on something that people have women have a lot of shame around and they shouldn't because it's our bodies, right? And things go wrong. And when you're creating life and um, it shouldn't be taboo or shame when something does go wrong, but there is, it's like women are just expected to have children and have great pregnancies and like go about their day (laughs) as if it's nothing. I mean, I think most women of our generation, you grew up and you didn't know anything about your body, you know, like you get to the age where you're pregnant that you wanted to, sorry, try to conceive. And suddenly it's like this shock that you, you like, oh, wait, I can only really get pregnant around the time of ovulation. Like, I didn't know that. Like, do you know how many women tell me that the whole time? Like it, it's crazy wow. that we aren't given these tools and that we just think that, you know, we spend our lives trying not to get pregnant. And then one day we want to get pregnant. We think it's just like all going to happen really easily blend that our bodies aren't caught up with. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if that ever will be, cause it's just the way we're born that there, you know, most women are having kids much later in life. So it is harder. And that's that probably that won't change, you know, it's like, which is so unfair <laughs> because you know, as you get older, you, you do lose eggs. Wouldn't it be nice to know what your baseline was, right? Like you mentioned that earlier um, about maybe when you're talking about being, learning about epilepsy, like a friend of mine who has gone through a lot of IVF and she's like, I wish I would have known at 21, like what was my FSH level? Because you don't learn about any of that until you're like in your thirties or late thirties or forties and you're running around, like shooting up your stomach, freezing eggs. And it's like, well, I would have loved to have known what these levels were at this age. Right. And why don't we? We just think that one day we want a baby and then we try for a baby and, you know, we're not, I mean, it really goes back to like basics. We're not taught about the menstrual cycle in school. We're not teaching young girls that actually you can only get pregnant really for a few days, two or three days a month. Um, Yeah. I think also there's this in when you're younger, or at least when I was growing up or, you know, in high school, once you started menstruating, which I started at 11. So, you know, it was pretty young. You're just taught like, don't get pregnant. So there's all this, you know, everybody um, is in that mindset of I can't get pregnant. I can't get pregnant. And then some, you'll hit a certain milestone in your life. And then it's like, I, I need a baby. I need to get pregnant right now. And many have been put on birth control, which many studies have shown that, you know, then that makes it harder for you to get pregnant. Um, and you're right. It's a real, just sort of whirlwind of no information. Or if you do get information, it seems like it's misinformation. Yeah, it's really difficult. And that's why I think it kind of, this conversation should start much earlier. You know, it's, as women, we only really learn about our bodies um, when something goes wrong or at the time that we're like trying to get pregnant or we are pregnant. And, 
there is so much that we can do, um, you know, to, to prepare our bodies um, for that time, or, you know, at least to have the information that can be empowering. So maybe that's, you know, getting a sense of where your fertility's at and your egg yeah. falls, and that could be done much younger than we're doing it. You know, a lot of women don't even know that that's an option. So I think- All my friends that had babies just, you know, naturally, they, they didn't even know what FSH was. I mean, it was sort of, it was, it was endearing where they were like, what are you talking about? You know, just because they got very, they were lucky. Um, and I don't think many women, or maybe they do now, I don't know. I, 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 I feel that many women, or I shouldn't say many, some, they don't realize how lucky they are getting pregnant naturally, mm -hmm. you know? And I think now with the way medicine is, and we have all these different you know, ways and, and you're, you know, you, you were able to get pregnant on your, on your own, uh, twice or three times. I don't, I don't really remember what I knew that the two miscarriages, but I believe you said you were pregnant. Twice. Before. Yeah. Twice now. So, you know, it's, it's really, and I, and I don't think it's people trying to like, how could you say that? That's, you know, that's so hurtful to so-and-so or me who's gone through, not me personally, but you know, if someone's gone through like 20 rounds of IVF, but it's just like what you're saying. People don't know. They don't have that, that information. And if we did do, you know, follicle count at age 20, 21, I think a, many women would maybe make different decisions. Mm -hmm. And now they're making them at, you know, 39, 40, where, you know, then there's this pressure, like hurry up where our bodies haven't caught up with the times. And, you know, they probably won't it's you know it's like that's what's great what you're working on and that there's things to do to sort of you know alter what you can without mm -hmm. going insane which is hard <laughs> I think it's difficult I think that um a lot of women kind of base their self-worth on yes. being able to reproduce and I think I would never have thought that I was that type of person um I don't think it is something that I was like conscious of, you know, I think it was like a, a subconscious um, feeling, but mm -hmm. as I've, you know, as I've begun to sort of like unravel and unpack this and, and what it means and where we are at in society and how like the mindset that I have around it, I've realized that a lot of it is about self-worth mm -hmm. um, it's like a feeling of, of, of failing. Mm -hmm. And it's also very, very painful to like really want something, as I said before, and, and, and not be able to get that and not feel like you have any control over it. Um, but, you know, to the point that you just made, like if we can educate women and, and talk about these challenges earlier um, mm -hmm. and how it's not the case for most people that you just get pregnant like that, then perhaps once we reach that time in our life where we do go about trying for a baby, then it would be a little less painful and a little bit easier. But, you know, these topics are taboos, so people don't feel that they can talk about them or share about them. Um, you know, they are incredibly common. I mean, an ectopic is, is not considered common. It's actually considered rare. I think it's one in 90, but, you know, miscarriage is like one in four. Um, and I think that the way that we really heal and the way that we're able to like better manage these situations is through the community, is through sharing our journeys with other women and having them share with us. Yes. Um, and so I think it's really difficult, this kind of, yeah, I guess this like taboo nature and the stigma that exists because ultimately by not sharing, we continue to not share because people don't want to share, you know, that they're pregnant until they're sort of three months in. And I think we discussed this before. That but was a really, sorry to interrupt you. That, no, that was just such a brilliant point you made because it, it almost maybe is self um, uh, like forecasting where it's like, don't tell anyone the baby could, you know, it's just like this because you're right. Cause then it's, it's perceived as a failure. Like, Oh, I miscarry. Like exactly. she, she couldn't bring the baby to term. Like, guess you're not a real woman. You know, it's just like, I'm doing quotes for my hands. It's, and it's yeah, really I, think, I think ultimately a lot of this comes from like, it's actually like a patriarchal issue. And I think that by not sharing it and by saving face, you know, perhaps like right. uh, in the past, it was about like, you know, the, the the man not 
wanting to have these conversations and not wanting to feel that as a family there had been a you know a failure or a mishap and wanted to kind of keep it hush hush and I, I remember the first time I got pregnant a friend saying to me share it with the people that you trust and that you wouldn't mind knowing if you lost it and I just remember thinking that was such like sound advice and obviously now feels very profound because it's true and had I not have shared it with anyone I wouldn't have had the support I mean I probably would have had the support because I have incredible yeah. friends I would have gone to those people you know or those particular people when I when I lost the baby but you know I think people sharing your joy and your excitement in those like early weeks is important because then they can understand where you're at when it doesn't work out you know it's not a case of like oh I got pregnant it's not the right time for us we don't know if we want to keep it and then you lose it it's like you're sharing you know and and that's what I did and shared with the people that were closest to me who knew how much I wanted it who knew how like unbelievably like happy and grateful I was so then when I lost it I had that support network um and I started a women's group um online for women that are experiencing challenges with their fertility so we've got a lot of women on the group that have endometriosis we've got some that have um, unexplained infertility Um, we've got a member who was born with two uteruses and had to have she lost one baby and then had to have a surgery to create one uterus out of the two it's a very rare condition Um, we've got yeah a member of the group who's looking for um, potentially looking for an egg donor so we've got this this wide range of women that uh, have all got different journeys and and some now a bunch of them actually have have had you know beautiful healthy children but um I, I originally started this group you know because I was it was the conversation that I needed to be having and I was starting to sort of like gravitate towards other women that were on these journeys and they were obviously struggling and I was like we just need a place where we can talk about this and put everyone together and it has honestly become the most beautiful group of just just support and like non-judgment and I think you know for a lot of people I know a lot of the women on the group personally I mean now it's grown so I don't but originally when I started it but I think for other women I've noticed that like they weren't sharing amongst their friends and so this was a place where they where they could share and they could say I've been trying for a year and I don't understand like why I'm not getting there and like why this is so painful right it's such a wild journey and I think you know, it's this, it's such a strange kind of energy to tap into because it's like, you can be very busy and you can have a lot going on. And I like to think that I'm in that position where it's like, you know, I, I'm fulfilled in my life. I really am fulfilled, but I have this, you know, this kind of yearning desire to, to have a baby. Um, and you kind of have to just get on with it. And wherever you look, whether that be Instagram or your friends when you're out and about, you know, you can get to a certain age and suddenly everyone's pregnant and everyone's announcing like that they're having a baby. And then obviously yeah. when the wound is there, it's like, it's just like constant, like just like salt being, you know, rubbed into those wounds. And it's, it's really tough, but you can't, you can't really protect yourself from it, right? You can't. No, it'd be like, protecting yourself from like the sunlight or something. I mean, you just yeah. hear about it. I think also because now people can, you know, freeze the eggs, IVF. I mean, I remember when I froze my eggs, I found it so rude that so many people would ask me, like, how many did you get? Yeah, that's Like crazy. it would literally, I would go in the car and like start crying because I really didn't get a lot. And I would have a friend that's like, well, I only got 30. And I'd be like, oh my God, like, but I, it was, again, I don't think it was mal- like some sort of malicious question. I, I like what you're saying. People aren't educated in what they're asking or, or maybe they just don't even understand it. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it's a really hard one as well, because it's like when we talk about normalizing some of these topics, so whether that be normalizing, like, you know, your choice to freeze, freeze your eggs or normalizing miscarriages, like I we don't want them to be normalized in the way that people are just saying to you, like, oh, how many eggs did you get? You know, like yeah. as if they're saying like, how much rent are you paying for your car? No, literally, I felt like it was like, so how long are you leasing your car? Um, but I, I, like you're saying, it, it's, not, it's the sensitivity chip that's missing with these topics. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
when I talk about like normalizing these topics, like normalizing, you know, um, the conversation around miscarriages, it's like, I want to normalize like talking about them openly in the way that we talk about how painful they are emotionally, how painful it was physically. I mean, even just like some of the, just like the, the kind of experience that you have in having a miscarriage, like, you know, we should talk about the fact that you're having contractions and that, you know, you're losing, you're passing and expelling a lot of tissue in the fetus. You bleed a lot. You know, sometimes you're able to see the fetus coming out of you. Like it's very traumatic, but I feel like the way that people have normalized it is just sort of like, you know, you'll go through that experience and someone will say, oh, I had a friend who had like five, you know, like, oh, everyone has them. And actually, you know, and perhaps when people say that they do mean to comfort or they do mean to provide solace, but I found that it, it, it kind of felt like it took away from what I was feeling in the grief. And I think when I say normalize, like let's normalize, let's open the conversation around the grief. Let's yeah. give up like people in society, like, you know, space to grieve. That must be really hard for you. How are you doing? No, like, I, I cannot stand when people are so dismissive of someone's experience. Mm-hmm. like that like oh someone had seven or someone had it's like when I say oh I'm you know I have manic depression they're like well everyone's depressed you know it's like yeah. well, no, I don't think everyone is manically depressed you know I don't think everyone has maybe taken a knife and thought about killing themselves I don't think any, everyone has had a mis- miscarriage and the experience that you said mm-hmm. and it it just is upsetting where I I really don't and again like you're saying I don't think people mean it like they're just trying to make you feel better, but it doesn't make people feel better mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. That just I think we just like we don't seem to have the ability. I mean, I would say the the, the Brits are, are are really terrible at this, but you know, <laughs> that's it's true. Like, it's it's like grief, you know. It's like I, I noticed that a lot. You know, where I'm from, where mm-hmm. people don't want to go into the emotion, and it's this kind of stuff stiff upper lip approach. So rather than ask someone how they're doing when they've lost their mother or their brother, or they just don't say anything. Or like um, make tea. I feel like everyone's just making yeah, tea. Yeah, everyone's a cup of tea. I mean, yeah, but we do believe <laughs> that all of our, all, all Brits believe that a cup of tea can solve a lot, which I think it can, but <laughs> that's a whole other topic. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's just a case of not being afraid to ask the questions. And I, and it's, I guess it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to know what the right questions are if you, if you haven't been through it, but it's just being a little bit more sensitive. And it's just, you know, I guess not everyone has a high EQ, but for most, you know, most of the time, whether somebody has, has lost, you know, a baby or whether they have, have lost, you know, uh, someone close to them, it's just checking in or, or, you know, in your case, as you said, like, rather than saying everyone's depressed, just the, you know, the kinder and, and, and I think the more sensitive response would be like, that's got to be really challenging. Like, how are you doing? Yeah. How, is, how, very, how does today feel? Yeah. But it's very um, difficult for some people to do that. And so that's why I think even it goes back to your friend who said, well, tell the people you can trust. And sometimes for where we are at right now, if you are going through something very difficult or want to share, you may not want to share it with everyone because if you're in a really vulnerable state, because it can set you off, you know, yeah. and until we get more information and education through things like with what you're doing, because it just, like you said, not everyone has a high, you know, IQ or even that I don't think a lot of people can handle what sometimes is real pain or something really heavy publicly because they haven't dealt with things themselves. And that's okay. But it, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when someone is dismissive in that way. And I think you have to be led by the person, you know, first and foremost, like if, mm-hmm. if the person hasn't brought it up or they don't seem to want to talk about it, then like, don't push them. Yes. You know, I think it's a case of if someone is, is kind of open and courageous enough to say, you know, I lost a baby recently and, you know, uh, it's then that you kind of just, just opening the space and, and just making them feel safe enough that they can that they can share with you. And I think, you know, I'm a big like advocate for openness and vulnerability because I think ultimately you give people the space to do that and to share back. And I think that's 
been something that I've taken with me, you know, and, and learned from the moment that I kind of came out about having epilepsy and, and, and started working in, in advocacy around that condition. And, and now it's really, this is kind of an extension of that, you know, with advocating for and raising awareness for endometriosis and, and obviously all the work that we're doing now with Looney, it's just about like giving people the space and the courage to share too. And people get that courage when they see, you know, somebody else sharing openly. I, you know, I think it's a really powerful tool of vulnerability. Um, and absolutely, you know, and I think it's like you said, if, if, if for anyone listening that sometimes doesn't know what to say, maybe don't say anything or just say, well, what is that like? How are you feeling? You know, instead of everyone has that or kind of going into the sort of general statement, I think sometimes it's better just to listen or not mm-hmm. jump to something to make, to kind of get you out of feeling uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Because it, it is hard. It is. And I, um, and also I think, especially with you that these incidents happened, you know, within really one year almost. So, right. Yeah. They happened very close together. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's why right now I've just decided that I'm going to take a minute and I'm not trying yet. Okay. And I'm just giving my heart the space that it needs to heal. And I'm focusing on Looney, which is my other baby, my business. Yeah. And yeah. So I think put a lot of this energy into that because obviously the two are very aligned and, you know, everything that we do and are starting to do with Looney is all about education and building community and, you know, educating around and encouraging men's, you know, teaching menstrual literacy, but also encouraging like body autonomy. That's something that we are passionate about at Looney, passionate about building community um, and, and everything that relates to the menstrual cycle. Yeah, that's great. And when is the when is the uh, launch? We are launching Looney in June. Okay, great. So soon. Very exciting. <laughs> okay, our five questions. What do you do for a mental break? I I will usually I get into the kitchen and I cook. I like to cook. That's just a way that I can kind of be creative. Yeah, that's really cathartic for me. When is the last time you cried? When is the last time I cried? I think the last time I cried was was when I lost the second baby. Um, was that period? So a few months ago now. What? So that was like in the fall, right? That was yeah. That was like two months ago, three months ago. I don't know why I'm thinking that's. Oh gosh, I'm just it just breaks my heart. Um, my dog. I don't know if you just heard him, but he's moaning as well for you. What, what are you, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading spirit babies. Oh, okay. That's about calling in the right soul for you. What is the best and worst advice you've been given? I, the best advice, I, I always think of my mom's advice that she gave me from a very early age, which is there's always time to be kind, simple, oh, nice. but profound. The worst advice I think about so advice of just like trying to perform like our male counterparts. Like I've definitely been told like as a woman, you have to like fight and for a seat at the table and you have to like fight even harder than men do. And I think that's terrible advice. And I think mm. it's about trying to show up with bringing your feminine energy. And I think, you know, yeah, doing, doing it the way that like feels true to ourselves. Um, and so I think that's probably some of the worst advice that I've been given because I think there's a, just a whole different essence that we as women, you know, bring to business. So, yeah. That is a very good point. Okay. And finally, what Instagram account do you find uplifting? Is there something, you know, obviously social media can be so toxic. Is there some account you follow that, oh, or something else you go to online that you just, this is so great to look at that you find healing in some way? Do you know what? We actually profiled an account on our Looney account called um, I Heart Erica. Erica Hart. She's a breast cancer survivor, uh, activist, and writer. And her account is so uplifting. And she 
gets her breasts out she's had surgery she dances around and she's just like the most like uplifting spirit ever so yeah all right well that is it can you just give us your handles or where we can find you I know you mentioned Looney and your Instagram or or Twitter or OnlyFans account I don't know you know whatever you're into my Instagram is my name it's just at Chelsea Leyland and the Looney Instagram is at my.looney. And, my. and that's L-O-O-N-I. All right, perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.